0: Welcome to the latest installment of The Curious Capitalist. The Curious Capitalist is a series of podcasts where we take the opportunity to not only speak to board members from the Conscious Capitalism Connecticut chapter, but also local business owners, startups, and entrepreneurs from across the state of Connecticut. Welcome to episode 22 of The Curious Capitalist. On today's episode, we have the pleasure of speaking with Sean Nelson. Sean won the 2003 Ernest & Young Entrepreneur of the Year Award and has appeared on Richard Branson's TV show, The Rebel Billionaire, where he won a $1 million investment. Sean is the founder and CEO of Stanford-based furniture company, Lovesack. Sean, welcome to The Curious Capitalist.
1: Thank you. Great to be with you.
0: It's a pleasure. Sean, tell me a little bit about how you got to this point in your career.
1: Oh, so Love Sack is a bit of a saga. I made the first Love Sack when I was 18 years old, still in high school, just graduated from high school. In that summer break, leading into college, bored out of my mind, thought it'd be funny to make a giant bean bag. Figured out very quickly that those uh, styrofoam beads were terrible in every way. And Ended up chopping up my parents' camping mattresses (laughs) to fill up, you know, this, what turned out to be like an eight foot in diameter sack of foam that everybody just loved. We'd take it to the drive-in movies, we'd take it to the beach, we'd take it camping. And then I left the country for a couple years uh, to go serve a mission for my church. And when I came back, going back to university, this is the University of Utah, and I remembered I had this thing and we dragged it out of the garage. We started taking it out again and everybody wants one. Everywhere I take this, everyone's going nuts for it. Like, where did you get that thing? So before long, I decided to start making them. So that's three years down the road and just made them as a side hustle through college. Um, At the end of university, I had to go get a real job, and so we we had this little business, me and my friends had sort of been running called Love Sack as a side hustle, and decided to, look, we had to close it up, move on with our lives, graduating with degrees. Let's give it one last shot, take it to a trade show. We got discovered by the Limited Two, you know, largest retailer in the United States out of Columbus, Ohio. Limited Corporation ordered 12,000 little Love Sacks from us. Wow. Not knowing it was me and my buddies in a lawnmower shredding foam device <laughs> in the back of this furniture factory. We then completed that order, having built a factory powered by farm equipment, believe it or not. How long yeah, did it take to fulfill that first order? You know, let me put it this way. We had to do that order because we had, of course, we'd only made a few hundred a year, ever. And um, to do that order, we estimated, I remember we had to do some like 250 a day. And the first day we did 30. Wow, we were thirty and shrunk them down, put them little boxes, shipped them off, and so we ended up working all day with you know a dozen or so temp laborers, and then at you know two or three p.m. their cousins would come in. We'd work into the night till eleven p.m., wake up the next morning, fill the tractor with diesel fuel to power our hay buster foam shredding contraption. Um, <laughs> powered by a tractor, really. <laughs> anyway. Did that, completed the order in about two months, and then realized I had no other customers. So we scrambled. We went to all the furniture stores. They laughed at us, told us that no one would buy a $500 bean bag, called the love sack nonetheless. <laughs> uh, so we opened our own store in the Gateway Mall in Salt Lake City, Utah, November 17, 2001. Wow. And uh, just hoped that you know, we could pay off our credit cards, having done the carpet, paint, neon sign, all that. And it just exploded. People came in, they sat, you know, we turned up the music, we had a movie playing, people had flopped down. Oh my gosh, this is amazing. And we were selling them for Christmas, and it just, and we were sold out of everything we could make. So fast forward, people began franchising from us. They wanted to open love sex stores all over the country. We were eager to just blow up. I went on that TV show with Richard Branson, won a million dollar investment. That fueled our growth. However, we needed to bring on venture capital to really get things going. And yeah. venture capital's big idea was to actually reorganize the company, get out of franchising, start a very painful, embarrassing, difficult time for LoveSack in 2005, six. And um, we emerged moving to Connecticut to be close to our investors. Rebuilt the company from twelve locations up to about fifty over the course of you know almost a decade. Invented this product called Sactionals that you know it was meant to be a couch that could be rearranged and washed and solve some of the problems that couches have, mm-hmm. like carrying them up the stairs. <laughs> or delivering them. And little did we know that you know ten years later it become our our number one selling product. We finally figured out how to convert this business from being a college kid you know not beanbag business to being a serious you know, contender against pottery barn, crate and barrel, restoration hardware, selling couches. Uh, beautiful couches that could essentially last the rest of your life, because you could wash them, change them, rearrange them, own the pieces, and continue to let them grow with you as your life changes. That ethos led to our purpose, and really our what we call our big, hairy, audacious goal, which is to convince mankind to buy less stuff, just buy better stuff. Yes. And we're very passionate about that because we make a product. I'm actually sitting on Sactionals that are naked. They're covered. I've just set these up in this cabin in the woods. They have no covers on. But you're actually looking at some of our millions of yards of fabric that we manufacture each year from 100% recycled plastic water bottles. So the upholstery that sectionals come in, is made from one hundred percent recycled plastic water bottles. So wow. we are the single largest repurposer of plastic water bottles in the United States of America to home deck fabric. If you can imagine that, just in our you know in our smalldom. I mean, lovesack is less than one percent of the furniture category. We have a long way to go. The final kind of I guess note in our modern history: we went public. In 2018. Yeah. We the ticker L O V E on <laughs> NASDAQ. <laughs> awesome. Canada. Yeah, I would be. A little bit of love to Wall Street. And um, we're just kind of charging along. Fastest growing furniture retailer in the United States, selling really only two things sectionals, uh, our couches, and sacks. And of course, the accoutrements that go with those
0: what a journey absolutely amazing and i love the idea of sectionals i do like that the fact it grows with your family and you know reducing waste has to be a key goal certainly in 2020 so what do you wish you'd known before you started out on this crazy journey i mean you mentioned that tricky time 2005 2006 where you had to kind of rebuild restructure the business but what do you wish you'd known before you started out with lovesack
1: oh The list of things I wish I had known before I was 18 years old is too long. But- um, (laughs) Me too. (laughs) But You know, I think a few big lessons, there is a modern cadence to doing business and really Love Sack was very early. We were bootstrapping before, you know, on our credit cards and just charging forward before the word bootstrapping existed. And now we throw it around as entrepreneurs, you know, as a form of finance and, you know, so a lot of it revolves around finance. I wish I had understood what it meant to raise money, what it meant to have a strategy. Like I said, we had to scramble and go get customers because we didn't have customers. I was, my hands were stained blue from stuffing these little blue love sacks for the limited two. I hadn't been out, right? So, so, you know, I have all these shawnisms I've developed, keep one hand on the now and have one hand on the next. I didn't do that. I was, you know, just Mm -hmm. emerging. I didn't know those sorts of things. I didn't have, I think maybe I could sum up the bigger lessons that house the smaller lessons in this. I wish I had been humble enough to seek out mentors and to network with people that were more experienced than I was. You know, part of being an entrepreneur, which is so hard, is that you have to be brash and bold and extremely self-confident take those risks and charge forward sometimes though by being that way we can be unwilling to seek out people that are just frankly smarter than us and and that are willing to you know have lunch with us and and give us advice but more importantly listen to that advice as it may come yeah and i'm sure i'm guilty of that and now you know the older i get perhaps the the more i feel like I just want to learn from others and and let others run with the ball and uh, show me how to do things and maybe advise along the way and and I think uh, that's a really hard thing for a young entrepreneur to at least this young entrepreneur too, uh, to. Grow.
0: <laughs> I think it is. It's difficult and being so so young when you set the company up. I think there is that element of everybody at that age feels like they could conquer the world
1: and know everything, uh, but taking Which, by guidance... the way, How you get how you get there? Yeah. You know, so it's it's, a, it's this double-edged sword that's really tough yeah
0: i'm a bit of a richard branson fan i've got to be honest obviously being a fellow brit what was it like working on the the rebel billionaire
1: well the rebel billionaire was one of these blessings that a young person can't appreciate you know we spent two solid months traveling the world with richard branson so this this show essentially revolved around it was a bit like the apprentice right but not for apprentices for entrepreneurs to make it real for you my runner-up on the show who you know i won the show she won in life was sarah blakely the founder of spanx yeah oh wow right i mean these are serious young entrepreneurs competing for the biggest prize in reality tv history yes and so it was you know we'd land in africa and okay you have 48 hours as teams to come up with an economic sustainability plan for this village and then then after that we're going to go jump off uh, victoria falls together because i'm richard branson and i do crazy stuff (laughs) then we're Gonna leave someone <laughs> behind. The and so we got to do this over and over again, all around the world. You know, Asia, wow. Africa, England, of course. Ended in Miami, down headed toward his island, Necker Island. On on Necker, I was awarded a million dollars and made president of Virgin Worldwide for just a minute a few months there and I got to travel the world again working with Richard's CEOs of some of his biggest companies wow. as their you know young voice to share my opinion and and listen to what they had to say and it, I mean it was it was one of those things that looking back you you can't appreciate that opportunity in the time it's happening incredible incredible wow
0: so talk to me about how you first heard about conscious
1: capitalism so conscious capitalism came to us through one of our investors later down the road we raised private equity and a firm called satori who is in my book the most conscious of private equity firms based in dallas texas They have a very unique charter that allows them to invest in companies over the longest periods of time without the onus to exit in the interest of, you know, just building good businesses and supporting great purposes. And their backbone is very much the conscious capitalism approach to doing business. And so when we met them and they finally chose to invest in us. They introduced us to Conscious Capitalism. I had been aware of the book and aware of the movement, but had not read it. And very quickly, it became a required reading at Lovesack. It's actually our number one required reading. We have three only. Ah, come on, hit me with them. Yeah, so Conscious Capitalism, Natural Capitalism, and Emotional Intelligence are our three required readings at Love I
0: love that. Uh, tell me about your higher purpose at Love Sack.
1: Absolutely. So our purpose as we define it, and we are very active in promoting what we call our strategic guide, which contains our purpose and our values and all these things in a, our sort of Bible. We speak to them ad nauseum in our meetings and otherwise week to week. And our purpose is to bring total comfort to millions of homes, which for a, you know, a furniture company sounds cute. But if you understand what we mean by total comfort, you know, if you own sectionals, not only does it make you feel great because you've literally have sucked up thousands of water bottles from the landfill in your investment, but you know, the hundred other ways, you know that you can have these pieces now for the rest of your life. In my living room, I'm, this is for real, my, in my home, I have pieces that have been with me since 2009 and pieces that I you know, bought last year and they're mixed together. They've moved with me three or four different homes. They're completely different configurations in each one. I would have had to exit every one of those couches because they wouldn't have worked in my current home along the way with all my moves because every home is different and they wouldn't fit. And we've all, every human in the modern world has some kind of couch experience, some terrible moving it through a doorway, can't get it up (laughs) in this room. You know, you pay all this money. Now you've got a disjointed sectional with these, you know, metal pieces exposed because they didn't, they worked in the last place. They don't work. And then by the way, kids, dogs, babies, pets, real life, they're washable. They're changeable. You know, you could buy something wacky like fur, covers I mean faux fur we sell them all the time though because people can oh my gosh they see it in a showroom they can't even believe this giant bed looking couch covered in faux fur and they'll do it because they know they could change it so my point is all of these reasons bring total comfort to your life it it takes a little ambient stress out of your life when you just don't to worry about your couch Right? Like no one thinks about their couch, but actually it's like, don't eat on, No, no food. No, get your feet off. No, don't jump. All of those things are gone with sectionals. We don't care.
0: I was going to ask you that. I mean, I know you've got four children, don't you? Is it four? Yeah, four. Two dogs. Two dogs, four children, and you have a couch from 2000 and, what was it, seven? 2009?
1: 2009,
0: some of those pieces, yeah. And they have survived four children and two dogs. Yeah, yeah. Sign me up. It. Sign me up.
1: <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. Totally. Come over, uh, and I said, you know, you, you tell me which pieces are the, you know, the decade plus old ones that you'd have no idea. And by the way, what's cool is if you flip them over and you looked underneath the covers, the new pieces, undoubtedly, we have come so far in our construction and our materials and the water bottle thing more recently, whatever, they look a little different under the covers, but everything we make, including our new products, that we're launching and a lot of technology coming, really cool stuff coming, is all reverse compatible. So like, think how angry people I get, you know, that's why I carry this phone, I love this phone. Um, And I have a newer iPhone, whatever, but that I use for videos, but this phone represents, right, this thing should be able to last me for a decade, why not, it's made of aluminum, it's great materials, but they are purposely killing it and as you know, that battery's toast, and they'll continue to degrade it over time.
0: For our listeners, you've got an iPhone Seven. Is that there? An what iPhone
1: Seven Six SE. Like- <laughs> it's, amazing. <laughs> it's amazing, and and the thing is, it pisses me off because. It's totally unnecessary. And when this thing goes to its grave, it's going to take with it all of the silicone and yeah. aluminum and gold and cadmium, also arsenic, you know, terrible bromine, terrible yeah. chemicals that we're going to ship off to Africa, bury in their landfills because we don't want it in ours, expose their people who are going to pirate all of those, you know, golden little pieces out of it. Yeah. And And this is what we're doing to our world. At at the highest levels, the most sophisticated companies, and it makes me so angry. And so the idea that everything we make is reverse compatible, it will work with the pieces and plug into and interact with the pieces that we were selling back in 2007. And I'm really proud of that. It's our ethos. That's how we do things. Everything's reverse compatible, future-proofed as much as we can, and we're totally crazy about it
0: something you said that just reminded me you know so you started building your products using tractors and goodness knows what else where are your products manufactured now tell me about the change in the manufacturing process
1: yeah so in the earliest days we manufactured practically in our backyard uh, in salt lake city utah in the back room of this old furniture factory that let us use some of their equipment because they thought we were funny Um, We've moved our plant to Mexico. Now our SAC plant resides in Dallas, Texas. We've Mm -hmm. um, sold our equipment to a third party who manufactures those for us in the United States. We manufacture our custom covers in Los Angeles. So if you wanted something unique and special, it's made for you real time very quickly with uh, US labor just in Los Angeles. And then the rest is all manufactured between China, vietnam malaysia india with a long-term goal that is not just a pie-in-the-sky goal we have a whole team dedicated to developing new manufacturing processes that don't exist using new materials that are cutting edge and building sectionals frames and you know the entire thing in america mostly from american materials and and it's not even about america we want to build them locally so imagine someday there are love showrooms hopefully and the UK and enough flow in Europe to, you know, really drive some business for us and there will be. We would hope to manufacture that product on that continent or even, you know, even more locally, as locally as we can get away with. And so imagine the idea of sucking all of the plastic water bottles that we can eat from a region, let's say the Northeast in America, to a plant that converts them to sectionals that look and feel the same as the ones I'm sitting on made from trees, which are okay. I mean, you know, trees, we harvest our wood sustainably, those sorts of things, but wouldn't it be cool to do that instead? And then by the way, those raw goods moved such a short distance only to be shipped out such a short distance not all the transport. Around. right now the global supply chain is essentially cutting down trees you know in russia maybe to rail them somewhere to asia to convert them using who knows what powered energy to finish goods to diesel fuel boat them across an ocean the biggest ocean <laughs> on the globe To Long Beach, California, where they can then be diesel railed to, let's say, Chicago or who knows where, only to be FedEx back to you in Huntington Beach. That is messed up. It is. And be a perpetrator of that. But we... Are conscious of it and we are absolutely invested engaged and passionate about changing that thinking about the culture and leadership at lovesack what language would you use
0: to describe your organization's culture does it have a definable character or words or language that you would describe it as
1: yeah well our culture you know revolves around really our values and we are very passionate about articulating our. we have a lot we have these buckets of values came from patrick lencioni our table stakes values our core values of course our aspirational values things that we aren't yet that we're aspiring to as an organization but our unlisted value that's nowhere on that chart but is in the top left corner of every slide deck we make In our name, we hang it above our door in 30 foot long signs lit for the world to see. We wear it on our chest on our t-shirts is love and we speak to it. And we talk about what that means in a business setting, which can be awkward for people just joining this company. And But, you know, it means something different in different realms and to different people, of course. And we are really passionate about trying to live up to that most noble word in any language. It's our ticker on Wall Street, you know, and we're very yeah. proud of that. And, and everything kind of falls out of that.
0: How do you get that message through to the most junior employee within the company? So it's
1: very easy
0: to sit in a beautiful executive office and have these lofty opinions and views and plans, but how do you pass that down to Jim on the shop floor? How do you really enthuse him and instill those values in him?
1: That's a great question. So we have a fairly rigorous onboarding process that allows people many days of training and exposure to people, of course, and in different departments, they can understand and meet and learn from each other and and have connections, you know, in the company. This is, of course, I'm speaking of our headquarters staff, which is, you know, growing and getting to fairly large size at this point that also includes an orientation around our values and watching various videos that i've made over the years and exposure to me i like to meet all of our new people and have just be able to talk to them about the company and and answer any questions um they're followed by a Three hour orientation that I lead that I'm very passionate about with Fantastic. every new employee. Yeah, so we really tried hard to, for lack of a better phrase, indoctrinate them from the beginning. But more importantly, we are very sensitive to hypocrisy. You know, we do our best and we can't be perfect. In an organization moving this fast but as an example every week we have a our top leadership meeting that consists of our VPs and directors and that meeting does not occur without something that we've done now for five plus years called a high-level share which means like it's not about business it's not about what's what's happening it's about you've got to pick one of those values that I mentioned or our purpose or anything from our strategic guide our Bible and share a couple of articles that you'll send out beforehand and then speak to that, essentially make a presentation to the group about that topic. And so these subjects, our values, our mission, our purpose, all of these things that are in that strategic guide, they are talked about on a weekly basis in depth at the top level. And then everybody who is a leader in the companies in that meeting, and then they are, tasked with leading their own weekly meetings or having a cadence of sharing those out on their own, in their own way. And we're very passionate about these things. And I think the more you're willing to speak about them and not just hang them on the wall somewhere, the more they become just integrated into the lexicon, the language and the behavior of your culture.
0: If you could snap your fingers and make one cultural change at the company, what would it be and why?
1: Man, if I could snap my fingers and make one cultural change, It would be the ability to get together again. Right now during COVID, my greatest worry, we've worked very hard to build a culture that's meaningful, you know, and and again it can't be perfect or it's not perfect. But a lot of the things that helped us get there were, you know, personal things. And and look, there's actually some advantages, I think, to the video conferencing that's going on. And certainly for people's personal lives in many realms, it can be better. But yeah, it's a shame to have to be separated and not be able to be with each other. And I hope that there aren't dire long-term ramifications from that.
0: So you mentioned having L-O-V-E as your ticker name. Talk to me about stakeholders. Who would you say is the most
1: important stakeholder in your company and why? I believe that the most important stakeholder in our company are our employees. Perhaps I stole this from Richard Branson, but I believe that you know, if you have happy employees that are motivated by purpose and money, and you have, you know, the right programs in place to address both, they will imbue that culture, of course. And all of the customer interactions that happen inevitably with an employee at any level will end well. And therefore, your customers are taken care of, your customers are happy they're gonna be promoting your company and now you know shareholders become happy as you have success and, and that's just a virtuous cycle. If a company wanted to make a shift towards being more conscious in, in how they do business, what would your advice be to that company? Yeah, if you wanna make a shift to being more conscious, I, I believe you have to pay the price to dig deep on that. Uh, I've mentioned it so many times on that strategic guide. You know, Adopt a framework that has you answering the questions you know, why we exist, where we're going, who we are. I have my own framework I created after, you know, studying all the books that I'm passionate about. Probably the best book on that topic in my mind is Patrick Lencioni's The Advantage, but Conscious Capitalism, Start With Why. Uh, these books have really shaped the the brand Bible that we use, guided by a framework that I call the 12 W's, where we answer all these w questions yeah 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 and as long as you have that you're willing to by the way dust it off although it shouldn't be collecting dust each year (laughs) yes and, and massaging it i'd say it took us almost a decade to refine it to the point now where it changes very very little it moves slowly like the tectonic plates now because we dialed in that language we've spoken to that language and everything fits and works but it took many many years of revisions to boil it down so tightly and everyone knows it and everyone understands it and speaks to it. So more about you then, when you're not focused on your
0: work, what do you do to relax? What's your, what are your hobbies, television, sports, Uh, hit me.
1: Yeah. So one of my sean because I realized I've been an entrepreneur so young, working so hard around the clock, sometimes literally not sleeping very often, you know, 24 hour days, I needed to play along the way. One of my Shaunisms, or I would just grow old. I'd wake up at 40, whatever, 50, and not having done anything because I was so sucked into trying to make this thing work. Yeah, sure. And so I've always just found time in the seams and cracks to surf. I'm huge on wakeboarding, water sports, behind the boat, skiing with my kids. I love it. You know, I can't tell you how many times more in the more recent years I've taking my kids up to the ski resort on a Tuesday, ditch school. My son's doing laps on the ski lift while I'm taking calls with my ski boots on in the car. And then, you know, maybe go get a run or two in and and buy him a burger. But whatever you got to do to be able to balance the demands of your job, but find ways to just, you know, push yourself to have fun, even if it's inconvenient. I'm a big believer in playing hard and working hard.
0: No, absolutely. And I think that without downtime, it makes you less effective You know, in the business world, for sure. So it sounds like you have a lot of outdoor fun, that's for sure. Yeah, a ton of outdoor fun. Uh, if you could have dinner with any figure in history, who would it be and what questions might you ask them?
1: You know, I would love to take Steve Jobs to dinner because having read his biography and seen his movies or whatever... Uh, the movies about him. I mean, talk about an influential figure in our modern time that really was a visionary, but in my observation, was so flawed as a human being. And I would love to understand what his rationale was for some of the things he did in his personal life. Was he just deficient psychologically, emotionally? Why could he amass a fortune like that and not share it from a philanthropic standpoint. You know, these questions really bother me. And um, I'd love to, uh, you look, he's clearly a smart guy. I'd love to just understand some of that.
0: It would certainly be a fascinating dinner guest, that's for sure. I'd like to come along to that dinner party. (laughs) Uh, What's been your greatest success, both professionally and personally?
1: This comes back to my core beliefs, separate from Love Sacks my greatest success is my family it has to be you know I, I wear this wedding ring that uh has an inscription on the inside that says everything else is dust and it's got six black diamonds representing the six members of my core family and look it's funny i was talking to my wife yesterday about you know this age of young entrepreneurs that are always posing with their lambos and their g wagons and they're like little mcmansions in la whatever and it's really popular and they mass these huge followings because who doesn't love the bling i guess but uh, everything else is dust to me even even and this is the tough part even love Sack, right it is a company it is furniture and if i allow my relationships with my kids and my wife and those things that should matter most in my opinion get blown up or gone sideways because of anything then it's all pointless and so look i'm i'm all for getting past a billion dollars and well beyond i'm all for employing hundreds and thousands of people i love it it's amazing but i believe that if everybody was able to focus enough on those they love to keep those relationships intact this world would be a very different place I think that's probably the best answer I've had for that. I usually
0: get these, uh, oh, I've done this great thing and that great thing and uh, I've managed to do this. But actually, what really matters? I like that. Everything else is dust. Uh, What's been your greatest fear that you've had to face in your life and overcome?
1: Oh, you know... My greatest fear, if I think about the times where I've felt afraid, sadly, it's always been around financing. So here's a broad piece of advice that I give occasionally to entrepreneurs who seek me out for advice. Product businesses suck up more cash than you can possibly imagine. And that's what's so cool about this modern age. There's lots of different ways to build businesses now that require very little cash. Um, It could be you and a friend in a basement who knows how to code and you could become bazillionaires. I love that we get to employ lots of people. I love our business model. I love that we're selling real products that make a difference in people's real analog lives. But product businesses require so much money from the beginning, even when you're massive. And I I couldn't have understood that. And so I faced numerous moments where the business was on the line because of financing. Even though we were doing great in many ways, fastest growing, whatever, best product, whatever, you just need lots of money. And I didn't come from lots of money. And I didn't know in the beginning how to access lots of money. I didn't come from that world at all. And it took me two decades to learn how to play that game, the financing game, the money raising game and all that. And along those ways in those in those tight moments, man, it is utter fear to spend sometimes weeks and months so close to the bone that any moment you're waiting for that phone call where it's just over where like you can't make payroll you got to wrap it up and all the disappointment and embarrassment that would come with that and luckily you know i rode that brink so many times i developed a very strong stomach for it but it's really scary to be in those positions
0: and you mentioned that you you felt that you now can play the finance game what tips would you have for any new young entrepreneurs you mentioned earlier the importance of networking is that a key element of it
1: Sure, some tips on raising money and getting to it. One, understand you're gonna need more than you ever think you will. And so find more, get more. Two, network endlessly. I'm really not a networker. I'm sort of like a do-it-myselfer. And so it's hard for me to be like a schmoozer and out there and push myself to meetings, conferences, whatever, where I could just, you know, these relationships, ultimately people, Lend money, I'll call it lending, but really, you know, give money, invest, whatever, to people they like. It's the same as selling. You know, people buy stuff from people they like. People buy people. Yep. Got to be likable. And that can be tough for people like me. You <laughs> know, we're not <laughs> <laughs> always likable. Um, but, you know, that's a good one. I, I think uh, being ahead of the curve, you know, like not waiting until you need it to be seeking it and to be bold you know like people are so afraid of the boogeyman and the venture capitalist and this and that well I've heard bad things listen if you if you are lucky enough to build your dream with other people's money and you can still become you know a millionaire for it because it's gonna become so big that even if you had a tiny slice how awesome is that that's America at its best and you take advantage of that don't be afraid of it it's out there and by the way here's the thing here's the thing that I didn't understand and this is really key you're sitting across from someone who like you're hoping will write a check to you or invest in you or whatever, understand that if they're running money, they must place their money. They are seeking the earth for somewhere to put it where it will grow because it cannot sit. That's their mandate. They want to give it to you. You just need to not suck. (laughs) And I didn't understand that dynamic I always felt like a beggar you know what I mean yeah and, and going so- cap in hand yeah yeah you don't need to be desperate you need to understand that they want you to not suck they you know they desperately want your business to be everything it is and, and by the way you got to be really transparent because they're big boys they enter or, or girls they understand that it's not going to be perfect and so you got to be transparent with people and honest with people and straightforward with people and, and they'll trust you and they'll give you money because they want to see it grow Selfishly, they are after that. And I didn't understand that dynamic. It's a really interesting angle to look at that.
0: So come on then. Tell me about your plan, Sean, personally and professionally. What's on the horizon for you five, ten years from here?
1: Yeah, so it is really hip to like build a company and then sell it for a bunch of money and then like buy a Lambo or whatever. Like I said, the the reality is as I've been stuck in this thing called Love Sack for more than two decades trying to just make it work. And now we're having some success, no doubt. I kind of want to just do it for another two decades. I look at how long it took to bring one meaningful product to market and achieve not even 1% of market share along the way, allowing us to gobble up plastic water bottles, allowing us to bring total comfort into homes. That just makes them happier, you know, reduces that little bit of stress out of their life they didn't even know they had coming from their couch. So we have this ethos called Design for Life. It guides everything we do now. It evolved over time, and it's what I kind of told you about the product. Essentially designed for life means we make things that are built to last a lifetime and designed to evolve. And if you stop for one second and think about all the artifacts in your life, the things you own, what of those things is built to last a lifetime and can evolve with you as your life changes completely or whatever, wherever it goes. And the answer is sectionals are extremely unique. And if we can just do other products through that same design lens, built for the last lifetime designed to evolve, we can have success forever. And by the way, fans that love us because they've had such a good experience with the things that they still own a decade or two later, and they're loyal and we can build a business that's in the billions. And to me, more important than the billions is the idea of employing all those people along the way sucking up all those water bottles. And the crazy part is, the end result will be people buying less stuff. They're gonna buy fewer couches in their life because they met us. And I am totally okay with that. And by saying that, I can never be as big as these a-holes because I'm unwilling to make our product suck at any point in that life cycle. But we can get pretty dang big and we can have a pretty big effect on the world, actually. I think if we are, if we can get it big. Amazing.
0: So Sean, how can people find out more about you, your vlog, your business? How can people get in touch? Hit me up with some social media and some websites.
1: Yeah. So lovesack.com, um, Sean of lovesack on social media, or of course lovesack on social media, but I'm found it uh, on Instagram, Sean of lovesack, YouTube, Sean, Sean of lovesack or Sean Nelson and uh, Twitter, Sean of lovesack. So just find me follow please let's be friends i love being in touch with aspiring entrepreneurs or anybody who has a conscious frame of mind amazing sean i want to
0: thank you for your time it's inspiring speaking to you it's been an absolute privilege and a pleasure thank you so much thank you for taking the time to listen to the latest installment of the curious capitalist for more information you can visit the website connecticut.consciouscapitalism.org